The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Dr. Crystal Croner, a recent Ph.D. graduate from the University of Missouri's College of Education, most specifically Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis. And I read about her published study, which was actually published in a journal that I don't normally see, Policy Futures in Education, and the title is The Body Politic, Childhood Obesity as a Symbol of an Unbalanced Economy. And I thought, bravo, I've got to speak with this woman. So, Dr. Croner, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be with you here today. Well, you have an interesting background. Uh, you have a master's degree in religious studies, and you, you mentioned that you focused on how rituals reflect social order. You have an undergraduate degree in developmental psychology, and now this emphasis on policy in education and economics. Tell me how you got where you are today. Well, um, it, it's interesting. When I was in the master's degree program for religious studies, part of the component of the fellowship was that we teach undergraduate courses. And throughout the course of my time teaching these students, I noticed that the way that I would approach them with controversial topics became very, very different. I noticed that I was changing the way that I was organizing the classes to be more approachable and less threatening. And as I noticed this shift in my own behavior, I started asking questions about what is this fear that we feel about difference and being educated about different lifestyles and religions? Where are we learning it? And it brought me over to more of a foundations of education department at the University of Missouri. And they've really allowed me to explore that in just about every possible angle you could think of. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you came upon this topic of childhood obesity and how economic policy is related to it and touch on a very important issue, at least in my opinion, and that is this issue of media literacy and children as consumers and seen as consumers. And I want to spend most of our time really honing in on your work in this area. So how is it that you crawled out from under this looming idea that if we are overweight, it's our own fault versus if we are overweight, it could have something to do with external toxic environments and policies? How did you get there? Well, I first began with a a kind of a religious studies angle on just how values of a culture can become reflected in the human body. And so from that perspective, I began to ask myself, how are we seeing the most vulnerable members of our population sick from being simultaneously malnourished and also obese? How are these children falling prey to this epidemic at this point? And particularly, if we are to educate them, what are we missing here? And as I began to explore that a little bit deeper, I started looking into federal school lunch policies and analyzing the discourse from these policies. 
And that really brought me kind of to the questions where uh, I began examining the relationships that become reflected in the way that we distribute our food. And so mainly I think that this is a critique and a um, call to draw attention to the way that food distribution systems reflect how we understand relationships in this society today. And the fact that they're very unbalanced is represented in these simultaneously obese and malnourished bodies. And I think you make a very astute observation, and that is that when we are obese, we are indeed malnourished. And in fact, we're told that we have choices to make, and yet you also recognize that our choices really aren't so great and that they're dwindling. So if we go back to your observations of school lunch, for example, do children have many choices? I believe that they probably today have more selections, than certainly than when I was a child, where there was school lunch and whatever was put on your tray, that's what you got. Uh, on the other hand, from the selections that they are offered, while I do believe that the people involved in deciding what foods are being offered to the kids on their lunch trays, they are working within the best choices that they have. Ultimately, they're not healthy choices. The food is mostly canned. It's resulting from farm subsidies and just the types of food that is not healthy for children to be eating. And so while there may be more choices, there's an illusion there that um, while the food looks like it's healthy food, it actually is not nourishing them. And what do you think is the best approach to changing the system? Well, I believe that one of the first things and that we as a society need to take a moment and really begin thinking about how we view change occurring. And that is to say that we have a very kind of all or nothing or controlling attitude about changing systems in that if we don't change everything now, then we might as well not even try. And rather than saying, if I educate myself and my children in my family or my classroom of children, that is a group of children that can then be, make informed choices about what they're eating and sort of chipping away at this illusion that, that people are not part of the system. Have you worked with children in terms of teaching them these skills? In a separate capacity, I've worked with children on um, relationship systems and, and things of that nature. But more personally, I have two children. Mm-hmm. And it, interestingly enough, my idea for this project came about because my my son was entering middle school at the time and had informed me that it was no longer cool for me to pack his lunch. Mm-hmm. And so I was faced with one of the central questions that I pose in this this paper, which is, what sorts of choices are the children being given, and how do we teach them how to make responsible choices within the limited framework that they are being offered? Um, So he is being sent off to school, and I have to know that, have I taught him what he needs to know to navigate these poor choices and try to make the best one that he can? Yeah, do you find that, or does he report to you that Now that he has these skills for making better choices, does he ever come home and say, there isn't a choice, there isn't one that I want to choose? 
Well, beyond the standard teenage response that you get about topics like this, I would say that, yes, there have been a few times because I, I didn't, again, I didn't want to press the issue too much so as to get, to, to wear him down about the topic. But from a very young age, I really did try to make him aware of what the market interests were behind where cereal boxes were situated in, in a grocery store, for instance, or mm-hmm. where is all the food that's good for you located in the store, on the perimeter of the store, and why do you think the store is laid out the way it is, and so forth. And just really wanting him to come up with the discovery on his own because mm-hmm. it really, I believe, sinks in for children when they are not told something, but rather they're given the tools to understand it themselves mm-hmm. and become savvy. Right. I, I agree with you. I, I think it's one of the most important skills we can teach children growing up, especially in a capitalistic society. Well, let me ask you then, philosophically, how you feel about the idea of, say, Coke and Pepsi, for example, developing relationships or partnerships with schools so that on the one hand, they're still selling children the idea that they're good guys, they're helping the schools out, they're giving the schools financial rewards oftentimes, and yet they still have these products that contribute to that malnourished obesity situation. How do you come to terms with those relationships? For me, I believe that um, while I don't necessarily agree with those types of products being vended in schools, I can definitely identify with the reasoning behind the schools making the choices that they are. And in particular, I often think of the types of choices that administrators in schools are making about food and these, these types of choices that they're making really remind me a lot of the types of choices that families in poverty are also making. Mm. In that, while they may not necessarily agree with some of the choices that they're making, they have to make a decision that can feed the most kids, fill them up, and get by with a very limited budget. Uh, on the other hand, when it comes to these products being vended in schools from the vendor's point of view, I really don't think that it's a matter of whether or not I simply agree or disagree with it, but for me, teaching kids the interests behind why those vending machines are there and why the schools are allowing them to be there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be something, a a blame game, for instance. It, It just is simply the issue of trusting in children's intellect enough to say, is there a way that I can sit down with these kids and talk to them about the relationship system that is allowing for these types of unhealthy decisions to be made. And uh, I believe that we can trust kids to understand these things and if we take the time to do it. You know, I recently was reading about neuromarketing and how you know we, we think, okay, armed with the right information and the navigating tools, we should be able to make the healthier choice or the best decision or to just say no, for example. Mm -hmm. And yet here we have this really seductive, savvy neuromarketing, these neuromarketing strategies that make advertisements turn on centers of our brain, pleasure centers of our brain. You know, how do we navigate those messages? How do we, it's almost like we have to 
alert children that they are going to be seeing things that are going to increase certain biochemical substances in their body to make them want to buy a certain food or beverage. Well, absolutely. And it's it's just becoming more and more uh, prevalent. Mm-hmm. The market interests in children are growing exponentially. And I do think, though, that if you start uh, young with children and begin asking them questions that allow them to see that these commercials are being created by people that have interests in selling them products and rather than them being these magical pictures that show up on their television out of nowhere with their favorite cartoon characters on them, uh, they can begin to understand that there are, that these foods, these products and images and lights and songs are all coming from people that are creating it and targeting it to them to see if they can. I, I wouldn't want to say trick the children, but... That's sort of the language that I use. Kind of a good word. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of use that language with my son. Uh, I'm not trying to be inflammatory here, but I, I, you know, with my son, I said, well, let's see, did they get you? How are they trying to get you with this one? And and, and in that sense, it changes the power dynamic in in a choice. And it's often likened to giving a child, uh, two choices, but neither of those choices are the ones that they really want. But they feel this sense of power because they are being allowed to make a choice. And I think that so much of this idea about consumerism and choice, it just is located in that center of us that says, nobody's going to tell me what I need to do. I'm going to make my own choice. And yet we don't see as a society that these choices are created by market interests in us consuming particular things that are, in this case, making us very sick. Do you think advertisements directed to children, especially young children, should be restricted? I do think that if you, if anyone were to sit down in the morning, for instance, and watch the different networks to see what, what types of commercials come on, it is absolutely unbelievable what goes on on cartoon channels, the mm-hmm. types of foods and products that are being marketed to children, and then every now and then you'll see a little something that says, ooh, get up and go outside and play, um, Mm -hmm. just to kind of keep it balanced. Right, right. And I do think that I definitely think that these types of predatory marketing schemas need to be limited. I I don't, while I wouldn't agree with the idea of completely banning every unhealthy choice from a child's choice environment, because I, I don't think that teaches them responsibility at all. Um, I, I do think that when they are particularly young, that this type of campaigning and marketing towards children is really unethical. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Crystal Croner. She recently received her doctorate in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis from the College of Education at the University of Missouri in Columbia. And her paper, which intrigued me, is titled The Body Politic, Childhood Obesity as a Symbol of an Unbalanced Economy, and it is featured in the journals Policy Futures in Education. Dr. Croner, I I need to ask you, you know, many times when this issue of do we limit advertising comes up, you know, the free speech issue rears its head and advertisers are quick to say no. It's up to the parent Mm -hmm. to be responsible to say no. You know, where are the parents, for example? Where are the parents? Well, 
I wouldn't want to speak for every parent in the world, but often they're right there. And I, and I do believe that many of us have just become accepting in a sense that, and in, including children, that these commercials are just on, and yes, we know this isn't healthy for us, and, and so on and so forth, but it, it just kind of has become the way things are. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the most troubling issue of the many troubling issues with childhood obesity. And it's this idea, again, that people cannot influence the system, that they, that what they're buying and whether or not they turn off the television or, I don't know, change the channel, that that's not going to make an impact on what then the corporations decide would be a better marketing tactic. Mm-hmm. One of the one-line statements that typically comes out of the food industry is that there are no good foods and bad foods. You know, we, we have a, the right to make a choice. What do you think about the good food, bad food concept? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think that my idea about good and bad of anything, I would say that we need to strike a balance here. And what we're deciding is the right amount of good or bad that we need of anything. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that good food is the kind of food, obviously, that keeps you feeling vital and healthy and bad food is the type of food that makes you sick and overweight and lacking energy and getting diabetes at the age of eight or nine. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things reflect to me a poor choice environment. Uh, and while I would say that um, I've got a definite problem with these types of foods being introduced in school lunches, um, what's really important for children, I think, is to understand that we shouldn't have to eliminate every unhealthy food for the rest of our lives. And again, there's that all-or-nothing idea about something. Mm-hmm. But rather that we need to start becoming responsible with our choices and saying, well, I can eat healthy most of the time, and then I can get a piece of cake mm-hmm. every now and then. It, it, it becomes less of a power issue when something is not eliminated from your choices, but rather you, you learn about it and you learn how to be responsible with it. I recently had been involved in doing some work with media literacy education of fifth graders. And I hear this from other practitioners, too, who, who say that they've taught media literacy. And consistently what happens is that once the children become enlightened, they go home and they tell their parents that maybe they don't want to go to McDonald's after going to church on Sunday. <laughs> and then the parents become upset. Because the children are all of a sudden, you know, being, raising their voice and say, not, not in a negative way, but just, you know, speaking out and saying, this isn't a good choice for our family. We don't want to do it. And then the, the parents feel conflicted. Have you, any, do you have any ideas on that? I think that th- that is one of the key areas that it's going to, it's going to be something that's going to need to be handled delicately. When you teach a child critical literacy, or media literacy, I believe that what you're really teaching them is to look through these normalized views of how we understand human relationships in our society and our economy in the society. And by economy, I think I mean more generally the system of exchange. And so in an economy, you can exchange any type of good or values or status or anything. 
Um, and, and really to teach somebody critical or media literacy is to give them the tools to begin thinking on their own in a very, very different way than we're normally taught. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have to also be responsible with that because it's obviously going to brush against the values of parents that have been just fine living this way and may even experience some of these these McDonald's and it, it's kind of a comfort food. Right. Or something they did after church every Sunday with their parents. So, you know, it's it, it's very interesting when you look at how food, the symbolicness of food, mm-hmm. um, that there's so much psychologically attached to the types of foods that we eat. Um, and then to then go in and teach children different values than perhaps their parents, we, we should be very careful about that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this is a... This opens up a whole, a whole can of worms that really looks at not only our, the way we've, we've been taught not to ask questions. It's easier in a classroom, I think, especially a limited resource classroom, if you have children that don't ask a whole lot of questions. And yet it's so critical for our society. And then we've got these complicated economic pieces that also feed into the problems that we face in, in any school district. So if I were to give you a magic wand, you've just, you know, received your doctorate. You've done this, you've written a terrific paper and uh you've explored some very important avenues or aspects of childhood obesity. Now you've got a magic wand. What would you change first? A magic wand. I'm overwhelmed. I know. With the thought of it. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? <laughs> well, particularly when when you are such an advocate for changing social inequality, um, I do believe that, that probably the first thing that I would do would be to make sure that the, the impoverished conditions of many of the children and their families that are being, I believe, almost forced into making unhealthy choices because it, unhealthy food is so much cheaper and lasts for so much longer. If I, I believe that I would probably try to tackle that issue first. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then from there, if if there were some way, in some small way, for school districts to begin partnering with local farmers and people, advocates that have been working on just these types of issues to try to bring local foods into schools, I think that that would uh, really do a lot in terms of children's health and t- just teaching the newest generation of kids coming up a very different way of understanding food relationships. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Dr. Croner, regarding impoverished populations. And it, every time I talk to somebody who's trying to make the world a better place, it typically always gets back to poverty and reducing poverty, or poverty is the root of so many evils. And even your suggestion to partner with local farmers to bring local fresh foods into schools that would be such a boom to even our local economy. And I don't know if school districts are thinking like that. That is the the issue here, that, that if you teach children media literacy and critical literacy, then perhaps thinking outside of the box and not doing things the way we always have done them uh, may be something that they may be a little more accustomed to thinking about, uh, whereas... Today and right now, particularly with the economic conditions the way they are, 
it becomes a very fear-based decision-making process and mm-hmm. a protective stance in protecting what little resources each entity has. And so I think that that is probably uh, going to be a large barrier there is just breaking down the fear of change and saying, what can we do to address this issue in a very different way than we've thought before? We just have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure you have an opportunity to talk about any aspects of your research that I neglected to to touch upon. I think that we've pretty much covered everything. Your background in religious studies and rituals intrigues me, and I wonder if we could just use a few minutes that we have left to talk about how the rituals reflecting social orders feeds into this topic? Well, uh, I think that when we enact the same types of behaviors in a, in a social space that looks a particular way every day, in a classroom, for instance, or even in our families and at home, there are particular customs for a space. And when you live in that space for a very long time, your brain and your body learn how to respond and even take in new information based on being in those types of spaces. And I do think that a lot of the sitting still in class and the basically receiving the information and not interacting as much as uh, as perhaps a child might want to interact with questions and so forth, I think it really sets about a particular cognition in a person that does not ask questions, that does not feel that learning is part of a, a, a process of being curious about one's surroundings. And so I think that that, for me, is uh, the foundation of, of this problem, is that we need to start teaching children how to experience the learning process very differently, that it's not boring, that human beings interact with their environments every day, and that's how we learn, and just trying to tailor the learning process and our intervention strategies according to that. When I typically speak to audiences, I I kind of boil it down to three items that I want to help nurture in children. One is curiosity, one is wonder, and one is empathy. What would you add to the list? A recognition of the self in the system. Now, I know that I, I love your ideas. They're, they're beautiful. And, but I do think that this idea that each person can define who he or she is and make their own decisions, just this self-actualization process, is just, I would love to see more of that. That's, that's a wonderful concept to, um, to end our interview on. I have to ask one more quick question because I'm very curious. What's next for you? Well, I have a lot of different types of topics that I work, work on. And so right now I'm uh, working on a paper on school rituals and uh, privileged culture. 
Oh, wonderful. And so we'll see how that one goes. All right. Well, I'll be anxious to read it. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Croner, for your time today. We've been speaking with Dr. Crystal Croner. She just wrote a wonderful article called The Body Politic, Childhood Obesity as a Symbol of an Unbalanced Economy, and it appears in the journal Policy Futures in Education, Volume 9, Number 3, 2011. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us and joining our conversation. And in closing, I want to say that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Croner, thank you so much. Thank you.